So Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. And we'll pray before we start. Let's pray. Father, once again, come by your Spirit and help us. As we read the pages of Scripture, how easy it is for us to skip over uh, all that you say to us. We pray, give us hearts to understand, hearts that desire your goodness, and hearts that are willing uh, to, to respond appropriately to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a chapter that uh, fills us with great encouragement um, it's a chapter of assurance and encouragement, um, leading to the great truth at the end. For I'm sure, verse 38, that uh, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we'll get to that in a few weeks. But uh, let me read from verse 18. <clears throat> And Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So as we've been walking through this chapter, um, chapter 8, with Paul, he has been showing us what the Christian life is like. Uh, and what it, is, what it is that makes a fundamental difference to the Christian. And that difference is made by the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And it's, you see, it's according to the Holy Spirit that we are able to live. Uh, not any longer according to the flesh, but we live according to the Spirit. As men and women saved and drawn into God's family. And the presence of the Holy Spirit enables us in a number of ways, a number of significant ways, that by the Spirit we're able to kill sin or mortify sin, as the old Puritans used to say, to kill sin in our lives, to put it to death. We're able also to to relate to God in a new way because By the Holy Spirit, we are able to say, Abba, Father. In other words, we have that that closeness of fellowship with God through Jesus Christ and by His Spirit. So that when we see God, we see 
not an ogre in heaven, not a distant deity, but a father who loves us. And we also discover that we are, by the help of the Holy Spirit, we are truly children of God. By his internal witness into our lives. And that through him, uh, through Jesus Christ, we are therefore heirs with Christ. And that we, all that Jesus Christ has in heaven, is what is in store for us with Jesus Christ. These are, are great and wonderful truths to be found, therefore, in the practical experience of a believer, all because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Now, at the end of the passage we looked at last week, Paul threw in uh, a little proviso there. Uh, verse 17, he says, We are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provi-, and here's the proviso. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And that serves to remind us that becoming a Christian is no easy thing. That the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't hold, us, hold out to us necessarily an easier life than we had before. Nor does it hold out to us material prosperity and success in the world's terms. Actually, it holds out the prospect of entering into a spiritual war. So you become a Christian and you suddenly discover that you're thrust into a spiritual battlefield. And that battle will be hard and difficult. You see, for example, it's it's not easy to bear down on sin in your life, is it? It's easy to let it run. To let it go. Not to put it to death. It's not easy to go against the flow of our culture and the people around us. To make a stand for the truth. It's not easy to continually remember that God is our Heavenly Father. And that He loves us. It's not easy to keep in mind that we have this inheritance that can never fade. Because our, we live, our, all our life we've been, we spent living by sight and not by faith. And we can't see what is due to us. All we have is the Word of God. And so we, we react to the things that we see. And so we're discouraged and it's not easy to hold on to the truth of what we are, about, we are going to inter- inherit. So these are the, some of the struggles that the Christian life uh, presents us with. A life of continual temptation and the impulses of the flesh that still affects our bodies. And living in a world that is corrupt and broken. And I don't need to list the ways in which that can be difficult for a Christian. Well, Paul is being very transparent about all of this. But he's also being very transparent about why that suffering is necessary. Why we should be patient in the midst of the struggles. And that what he is doing now is, what Paul is doing now is to dwell on the glory that is to come. The glory that awaits us. And what he's going to show is, is that it is not just, it's not just us that are looking forward to glory. 
whole of creation is looking forward to glory. And this whole business of salvation is not just about us and individuals making it into heaven. It's about the whole created order. Longing for and sharing in the freedom of the children, the freedom that the children of God will experience. The whole creation is gathered into it. And this is what uh, Paul calls the revealing of the sons of God. When the sons of God are revealed, then creation rejoices. Let's think about creation first of all. Paul mentions creation almost in every verse. Uh, Not in verse 18 and not in verses 24 and 25. Uh, Not the first verse and not the last two verses. But every other verse he he mentions creation. So obviously creation is a significant uh, part of his teaching here. What does he mean by creation? And it could include, of course, uh, a great many things. If we include every created thing, we think about the physical universe that we live in, we think about the creatures that inhabit this universe, we think about the human beings, perhaps we'll even think about the angels and the demons, because they're created beings too. Uh, All part of the the created order, the, the fullness of the created order. But I think possibly what Paul is is meaning here, and for reasons that are here in the text, and we, but we needn't dwell in too much, is I believe he simply means the physical universe, including the creatures. He means the universe that a modern scientist would consider. And Paul says three things about this creation. He says, firstly, in verse 20. That creation is unwillingly brought under subjection. In other words, something has happened in this world that has put the whole of creation under some kind of authority. That it is not willing to be put under. But now it's unwilling, you see, and it's, it's in, as in verse 21 it says, it's uh, in bondage to decay. In other, as it were, creation is under lock and key. Creation is in chains and it's in a state of decay. Creation is kind of falling apart. Now how did that happen? Well, of course, Paul is speaking here about the consequences of the fall of man described back in Genesis chapters 1 to 3. And in chapters 1 to 2 of his letter to the Romans, he describes the way God made a world that was very good. Oh, sorry, chapters 1 and 2 of, of Genesis, he describes a, a world that was, which is very good, and God is pleased with all that he has made. And yet we see how mankind succumbed to temptation. Eve ate the fruit and Adam joined in. And then denied God, God's word. We saw the, we've seen the devastating consequences for the whole of mankind therefore. And that's that that simple act. That mankind fell. One thing we must remember about that story 
is all the consequences that follow because of that sin are a direct result of the curse of God. That God, as a result of his sovereign will and purpose, placed creation under this curse of death. Death to all people because of their sin. And so life becomes a a life of toiling and laboring and struggling. Trying to get the ground to produce some fruit that they can eat. The The pain of childbirth and so on as described by God. See, God was not a helpless bystander in all of this, watching his creation fall to pieces like a house of cards. No, God was was the one who put the creation under bondage to decay. This is what Paul's saying. And we need to pause for a moment, perhaps, and just think about that. You see, our temptation is that when we see disaster in the world, or have a disaster perhaps happen to us, it's for people to get angry with God. If he exists, let's complain to God about these things. And to wave our fists at him. And to feel that we have the right to wave our fists at him and say, what are you doing? But does it ever occur to mankind that perhaps all along God is carrying out his judgment on mankind? That his wrath is working out? Isn't that the message of chapters 1 and 2 of Romans? Doesn't he have every right to be angry at the sinful, fallen condition of mankind well there's the second thing he says about creation still under the main head in creation but still the second thing under it uh, creation is subjected to futility or vanity what does that mean? it means emptiness pointlessness he is saying that creation in its current state serves no ultimate useful purpose if left in that state And it's, of course, it's true. You know, in a universe without God, if such a thing were possible, which it isn't, in a universe without God, an atheist universe, that universe is, of course, pointless. It's, uh, it's one of the, the messages of the book of Ecclesiastes. And there, in that book, the writer tries all kinds of things to try and get meaning out of life without God, to try and find meaning under the sun. No God up there, just the sun. Try and find meaning, purpose. And he comes to the conclusion, and it's right at the beginning of the book, the second verse of the book, he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything's empty, everything's pointless. In a universe without God. And that's the truth of human beings today. We can't get rid of that gnawing... uh, Feeling in our hearts that something, there is something fundamentally unsatisfying about this universe that we live in if we live it without God. There's an utter pointlessness to our existence without God. 
sorry about this, but Woody Allen, remember the filmmaker, whose name has come under a cloud recently, but uh, Woody Allen, uh, the joker that he was, he says, I don't, want to, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. <laughs> I want to achieve it through not dying. You see, he's hungry for something that keeps him, him living. And this work, even his work, and his great body of work in filmmaking, in the end, means nothing. You see, what makes this point, creation pointless in the end is the inevitable march of corruption and decay. Whatever is made and achieved in our lives, if something else doesn't destroy it, the second law of thermodynamics will. All, I don't know if you ever, I, mean, I, I used to be a physicist. <laughs> and the second law of thermodynamics just rubs out everything. Eventually, according to the theories, in a several trillion years future, everything will be rubbed out. It'll just be a, the universe will just be a kind of massive low-level radiation with no memory of anything that ever happened in it. That's the theory, at least. See, creation without God is utterly pointless. There's no meaning to it. There's no room for truth, for beauty, for meaning. And it's this, I suggest, that drives our Western world increasingly towards nihilism, And the pursuit of pleasure right now. There is nothing of lasting value. So let's eat, drink and for tomorrow we die. And so there is this pointlessness pointlessness that arises when we ignore God. But actually Paul is saying something more than this. He knows God. It does exist. And even now, in its current state... Creation is still pointless, vain, futile. Not just that it feels pointless if we think too hard about it, but that it really is futile in its current state. There is still this bondage to decay, and we can't help thinking, surely there's got to be more to this universe than that. So here's the third thing he says about creation, still under that first heading. Third thing he says about about creation. We have creation that is groaning. Creation that is groaning. We we do actually live in a world that that was created purposeful and good when it was made. But now it's fallen and broken. And yes, we do see a, a universe that has evidence of beauty and truth and meaning. And yet it is ravaged by the evil of mankind who has lost his way. And when we look at all this and try and put it all together, we know there has to be more than the world as it currently is. And therefore, there's this sense of groaning. And he uses an idea to try and explain what this is. And it ought to make us stop for a moment. You see, this groaning... We might think, is this groaning the kind of groaning that comes in the final throes of death? You know, uh, in the pain of death, perhaps. That's not what Paul says. He says it's like the groaning of childbirth. You ladies who have had children or are looking forward to having children, 
you know the groaning of childbirth, don't you? You just want it over with. There comes a point where you want it over with. You want the child to come. And the birth of a child is painful. But it's not death. It's actually a prelude to something wonderful. And that's what Paul is leading to. Though to our limited human understanding, the world is broken and dying. In the redemptive plans of God, there is purpose, even for creation, to be set free from the bondage that it is now in. So when is that moment going to come? When is that moment of freedom going to come for creation? Well, it's going to come in verse 19, through the revealing, when the sons of God are revealed. This is our second thing. The revealing of the sons of God. Paul links closely the future prospects of creation with the future prospects of the children of God. In other words, Christians. In other words, the church of Jesus Christ. Creation. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So he is he's picturing here a material order that God has created, waiting with longing for this future great event, the revealing of the sons of God. And who does he have in mind, the sons of God? Well, he's, he's already told us who are the sons, of, the sons of God. Back in verse 15, we, we looked at it last time. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So he's talking about you and me. If we're Christians today, one day we're going to be revealed. It points us to the fact that whatever we see today of Christians in the world... There is going to be a great revelation of the sons of God in the future that's far beyond what we can see today. One of the things I think we wrestle with as a church here in Solihull and any church anywhere is that as we pursue our part in the Great Commission to make Christ known to the world, we wrestle with the fact that Though we are visible and anybody can see it if they can care to come, the vast majority of people in Solihull have no idea that we exist, let alone have any interest in coming. We're visible and yet in a sense we're invisible. We're hidden. And that's true for Paul, it's true for the Romans. But one day, The sons of God are going to be revealed to all of creation. There will be no getting away from what God has done amongst his people. As he reveals his sons. Ladies, you're included in the term sons, of course. (laughs) And it's a glorious thing that we're looking forward to. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by that revelation of the sons of God? You need to look on a bit to verse 23. 
And he says this. Not only creation. Not only the creation. But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. And the important bit I'm getting to is this last part of that verse. The redemption of our bodies. But he says two very important things here. Uh, He says, first of all, that there is a future adoption. Now, we've already come across the spirit of adoption in verse 15. Um, We are already the children of God. So we have been adopted. We have received the spirit of adoption. We have been adopted. But there is a future adoption yet to come. A, A kind of consummation of the thing that's already true of us. We are adopted, but one day we're going to be seen to be adopted by God. And then, secondly, as if to explain what that means, he talks about the redemption of the body. And I think the reference to the body is significant. What Paul, I think, has in view here is the final resurrection of our bodies. And I think it's this that is the revelation of the sons of God, which creation eagerly awaits for. The day when the people of God are raised from the dead. And everybody can see who are the children of God. And it's at that point we find ourselves in that state of true glory. And with Jesus Christ entering into the inheritance that is ours. As it were, lifted from the ground, raised from the land. In fulfillment of all the promises of land and inheritance in the Old Testament. Right through now into the new. We are raised and revealed to the creation. And that's when true freedom comes to us and comes to creation. Creation will be freed from its bondage. A new heavens and a new earth as it's put elsewhere in the Bible. You just pause for breath for a moment as you think about that. We try and fit together all that we have already found in Romans. That when you become a believing Christian, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit who brings about a changed life. But remember that there's still sin present in our members. That we are dead to sin and yet sin itself is not dead to us. Sin as it were is still a ball and chain weighing us down on this earth, isn't it? We still sin. And to be free will require the death of our bodies. And a subsequent resurrection to a new sinless body. And it's at this point we truly enter into glory. And we will be finally and fully revealed as the sons of God. And along with that comes the freeing of all creation. To become a new free creation. Friends, this is the prospect that awaits us as Christians. Of that unlimited glory in the presence of Jesus Christ. With new glorious bodies able to fully enjoy a new creation in his presence. Without all the problems that sin brings. That's the picture 
Paul wants to encourage these first century Christians with and wants to encourage us with today. That whether we are dealing with the the external opposition to the gospel or whether we are simply wrestling with our sin and our finitude and our weakness and our failure, there is this great picture of the revealing of the sons of God yet to come. Which brings us to our final point. Paul speaks at the end about having patience and hope through this life. This gives us hope, doesn't it? And it's this experience of waiting patiently that is what he speaks about in the last three verses. He speaks of groaning, yes. He speaks of hoping and he speaks of being patient. We groan. It's a strange word. But it's a bit like this. It's a bit like, uh, you know, when, it, when you've wanted something really badly and you're going to get it one day, maybe you think, and you, but you just think you have this longing and desire in your heart and it's almost like uh, it affects you physically and when you think about it, maybe you've fallen in love and you're going to get married and you look forward to that day and you just go, oh, I just wish it would, it would happen. <laughs> you know, that kind of groaning. I think that's what he's, he's getting at here. This is what happens to the Christian when he or she receives the Holy Spirit. There's a longing, there's a sighing of the soul, a groaning that you begin to feel because you're looking forward to the glory to come. And the thing is that with the presence of the Spirit, you get a taster of it now. How do I know that? Because he describes this as the, the first fruits of the Spirit. The Christian gets the first fruits of the Spirit in verse 23. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. What does he mean by first fruits? Well, he means this. He means that it goes back to the Old Testament, the practice of giving the Lord the first fruits of the harvest, the, the first 10%. And it was a token because if you give the Lord 10%, then you, you're saying you're, you're going to give all of it. You're really giving all of it to the Lord. And God does this for us in the Holy Spirit. He, he gives us the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. But he's saying there's more to come. There's a glory to come. I, I, wouldn't, has, I wouldn't say it's 90% more. I'm saying <laughs> the, the remaining 90%. There's much more to come. And we groan with it. And friends, whatever you're tasting now as a result of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, it's only the first fruits of what's to come. What what awaits you in that resurrection body is the full measure of the blessing of the glory of God. And because we're able to taste it now, it fuels our hope for the future. And gives us patience to endure present struggles and trials. Friends, the trouble, if you're facing trouble today, and difficulty, as long as you're killing sin, that struggle is not a sign of the absence of the blessing of God. Actually, it's the normal Christian experience of waiting, of longing, of groaning for something much better. Just as the pain of childbirth is a normal experience of a mother looking forward to the glorious birth of her child, so we wait and long for the glorious freedom that the resurrection will bring to us.
and for all creation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that is set out before us in your word. Thank you for the encouragement we have in all our struggles and trials. We pray you'd sustain us in them. In Jesus' name, amen.